This is Yachting Yarns. I'm Linda Woods. In this episode, we catch up with Lynn and Pam, still roaming around the Caribbean three years after they left England. They took a short break and went home, then arrived back in the tropics, keen to move on. We've had three months since we at in UK. Yeah. We decided then that we would go on after that. We left there in November 1995, and we went across the northern coast of Venezuela, still in the Caribbean Sea, and then we went to the ABC Islands. Now, the A is Aruba, and that is expensive resorts, cruise ships, lots of lots of expensive properties there. Um, people probably buy in there because they're famous and they want some quiet peace or something. Anyway, we didn't go to Aruba because it didn't seem to fit in with the sort of things that we were doing. So you started with B for Bonaire. Bonaire had absolutely crystal clear water. And I mean crystal clear. We did some good diving. Oh, we did some very good diving there. You had a badge that you wore. That gave you permission to go to these various moorings. They didn't want yachts anchoring and disturbing the the seabed, so provided these moorings for your dinghy. We were rigged to go diving, and we looked through the water. We could see every single nail in the hull of this old ship. It was 100 feet below us. It was a most incredible place. We took up a mooring near the town, and the front of the boat was close to the sand, and the back of the boat was on a drop on a wall and we would get off the boat with our dive gear on and just slide down this wall and it had everything but it was just so clear it was incredible what we didn't have was a camera that would take a picture underwater so we never ever took pictures of this we only have them in our memory what do you remember about the sea life you saw while diving in the caribbean oh loads of things we saw some squid uh, one time there were two of them oh. and they were changing colours and going back and forth by the side of each other and changing colours all the time. We just watched them, them facing each other and doing yes. it. And it. I'm sure it was a sort of courtship, yes. something like that. Yes. But it was absolutely charming. Yeah. But what stands out in my mind is the diving with the manta ray. We did an organised dive with the commercial dive team <laughs> and the dive master said, right, we're going to jump off the side of the boat and you'll go down to 60 feet and the manta ray will come up and see you. And it did. It happened exactly like that. The manta ray came up to us and we were able to stroke them. They just loved it. You just touched the underneath of the uh, fins that are the ends of the manta ray, the pointed ends. They just loved it, apparently, because they never moved. They just kept doing it until one guy had a pair of gloves on. And he shot him off like, one nothing. Yes, they like the heat of your hand. That's what they like, the uh, the warmth from your hand. So Mm. appreciate. And, of course, with the rubber gloves, they didn't get any heat. (laughs) Boy, they can move when they want to. (laughs) Well, what a wonderful experience. What a fantastic experience. There was also a lot to see on the island itself. What we thought was mountains of ice and snow were actually salt. Mountains of salt. (laughs) And uh, when you get your nice packet of salt from the supermarket, you you have to go back to where they go to the beach, they shovel it up off the beach with this dirty old shovel, (laughs) put it in a dirty old wheelbarrow, and then uh, take it ashore and put it into sacks. You think, I hope they clean it. (laughs) 
<laughs> you can't look at salt the same way again. No, no. That's right. No, salt's different from then on. And then it was on to the sea island, Curacao. Curacao was a lovely inland sea that we found eventually by following somebody. And it was gorgeous. And there was a, a, a friendly visitor's centre there for the yacht. They, they did everything to help you find your way around, get what you wanted, whatever. And they also ran races at the weekend for the yachts and things like that. And um, we found this little place and it had an honesty box. It, it was such a charming place. And everybody just, if they took a beer from the fridge, they, ha- they put so much into the box. And, and as long as it worked... It would be fine. It seemed to work while we were there, and it seemed to be very welcomed. But we we do hear from time to time about places, and they've had to change their ways. And, of course, all those places are destinations for the big cruise liners. Did you see much of those? Not really, because the time of the cruise liner has happened largely since we were on the water. Not completely, obviously, but when we first started off, you didn't see a cruise liner at all. You also didn't see marinas. We'd arrive at places and you anchored in a bay. We avoided marinas. It cost money. We actually preferred to be on anchor as long as it was uh, reasonably sheltered and so on. Um, We preferred that. Yes, we we did see cruise ships while we were in the Caribbean. We saw cruise ships. And uh, did you really cross the Atlantic in that little boat? We got that from a few Americans. Did you get the impression that these islands are quite rich, that they have a lot of wealth? No. I think any wealth that used to be in them might have come from the parliamentarians that came out to the islands and established sugar plantations and kept slaves and made their money, a lot of money, because they charged way over what they should have done. It was an absolute racket. When they got made independent, the the indication was that they thought, well, we don't have to work anymore. (laughs) (laughs) We actually heard that, yes. The the, uh, sugar mills went rusty and they were gorgeous because they're being Victorian. Everything was decorated. (laughs) If there was any cast iron around, it wasn't just the fitting. It was all sculptured. (laughs) It was was fascinating to walk around if you could get around with the overgrown jungle. The jungle. <laughs> so the remnants were there of 300 years ago, that all those remnants oh, were yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah lots yes, of indeed. But they, as he said, they were, they were beginning to be part of the earth. The, the, the grass was growing up between them and any re- remainders of the sugar cane was growing up just the same each year. So uh, you just saw things mm. just in the distance. So you'd walk over and you'd explore, see what was there. The jungle takes Pretty. over. Mm. Did you cross paths with other travellers more than once? conversation with a, a German guy on the boat who was an excellent guitarist and uh, he said um, where are you going to be in Christmas and we said well I don't know probably in the San Blas Island uh, this was back in Grenada yeah. and he said all right might see you there <laughs> now we didn't take this very seriously but we sort of always had in the back of my mind oh well, maybe Wolfgang will be there and we couldn't get there in time and we didn't really think about it but we now and again we think, I wonder if he's there. But we went into Cartagena, which is a the main town of Colombia. We just stayed there for Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Boxing Day, and then left. Had a party there, went to see the old city. No officialdom. The customs have the days off, you see, for Christmas. That was, the, that was Colombia. 
drug centre of the world. So we were told it was squeaky clean in Cartagena, but I think Len went ashore to go and get something, and he was accosted several times. I think I had one foot on the jetty and one on the boat, and the guy said, you want ganja? <laughs> what would I do with ganja? So that was just yeah. squeaky clean. Very clean ganja. From Cartagena, yeah. we went across the San Blas Islands, so we right. chose a particular island to aim for, and we went in and circled round, found ourselves a nice little spot to anchor. When we sailed into this anchorage and Wolfgang was there, we saw this guy and he was having a pee over the side, which yachts tend to do. And uh, he looked at us and he rushed down below and he came up with binoculars. It was obvious that uh, he knew who we were. And when we met up, he said, you're late. <laughs> he thought our arrangement of Grenada was actually real. So you all had a happy catch-up, even if it wasn't for Christmas. On New Year's Eve, we went ashore. We rigged up our generator way, way into the bush so that we didn't make a lot of noise. Lots of leaves out and a light up in one of the palm trees. Having worked for the lighting company, and I had a couple of floodlights we took, on board. We took the piano ashore and all our instruments and somebody had caught a, lo- a large fish and they did a barbecue. And we had a New Year's Eve that you'd never believe. There was a Japanese sailor there that had come from Japan the other way through the canal and up to these islands. And he, he was there. And they toppled on a German boat that didn't speak any English. And Len and he were playing harmonicas together. Yeah. Yeah, we played Lily Marlone together. Yes, it was quite an amazing sort of way of doing things. <laughs> yes, we had friends visitors there. Well, we had friends join us there to, to, to go to a little bit of the Pacific they wanted to do. Oh, Panama must be a lovely city. Its history dates way back to the 1500s. Yeah, we went to see the old city, which was really white stucco, beautifully carved out stonework on their buildings, and lovely things. And one of the things that struck me as very strange, the Pacific is named Pacific because of Balboa. Yeah, Balboa. Somebody like that. He stood stood on the um, clifftop and he looked out to sea and he said how wonderfully peaceful this ocean was. So it was named the Pacific Ocean. Well, this is only relatively <laughs> true because, in fact, you have you've got to go a little way, and it soon gets non-Pacific. Well, coming from two sides, coming in on the right side at the back, and then on the left side at the back. So your poor boat is going tossing, not really hard. It was quite gentle, but it was like something going like in a tumble dryer. To one side to the other. Took a bit of getting used to it. It's like riding a horse with three legs. (laughs) If you've ever done any horse riding and you've ridden a horse with a limp, you'll know what I'm talking about. After so much time living locally on these tropical islands, did you get a sense of how the locals regarded people like yourselves? You don't really get very much impression from the local people other than what you can do for them or what you can contribute, I suppose. I think they felt that a lot of us were very rich. Of us, um, having bought the boat, were not very rich at all. It, it, it was a strange um, thing. But when we got to know somebody, uh, we invited them out to the boat, and it was a family, which we did when we were in St. Lucia. Uh, um, we had uh, a lovely reaction because they 
they really made themselves at home and they sat on the bowsprit platform and they enjoyed the, the actual sailing. We had some nice little moments there with the family in St Lucia. What about other sailors that you met? They would have come in all shapes and sizes. I think the yachties all varied very much on, as to what their circumstances were. Um, a lot of the Americans came to the Caribbean in between working back in America. Sometimes they would leave their boat. Sometimes they would take it back to America. And, and they sort of made their money. And then they came out again for another foray into the Caribbean. So it was quite an easy trip for them. It, in fact, young people amazed us because many of them yet to have their children and they would have a child in one island and then they would go on and then they would work somewhere and then perhaps they'd have another child. So their family really were very spread out, at least the origins of their family. <laughs> Quite amazing what they would do. Most of these islands that you visited in the Caribbean, they belong to other countries. No, not, belong is not the right word. I think... Um, the, some of them were run by the English and then handed over and their republics, like Grenada. And uh, there's some American influence there too. Places like St. Lucia, they were originally British, but they are an independent country now. Martinique and Guadeloupe and the, and the Saints, they are all French. They're run by the French and they have representation at the government in France. So there are people from the island in Paris and they work for their island from that sort of distance. And then you get some that are now under Netherlands jurisdiction, quite a few of them under the Netherlands. And um, I think they have some representation. You've got the influence of Spain in Cuba and there are all sorts of places. Jamaica was an English one. And I only know about that because I used to teach in London where the Jamaican people came when they were having difficulties on their island. They were welcomed to come to England for a different life. And uh, we had a lot of pupils that were uh, from Jamaica. So it's a kind of a United Nations, uh, the whole thing, a bit of a United Nations. Um, Yeah. Jamaica's got this reputation of of all this music. Oh, yeah. We didn't actually go to Jamaica. We decided against it. It had been having some troubles and there were attacks on both so we didn't bother to go there. One of the more interesting places you visited were the San Blas Islands, made up of nearly 400 separate islands. Yes, that was interesting because those are totally autonomous group of people and they have their own dress, their own culture, their own uh, way of leading their lives and their own government, even within Panama. They were quite an unusual set of people. And they would sell their craft mostly to make money. They sailed boats, dugouts that were really slim and with long poles out from them to to climb out on to keep them balanced. They were quite incredible sailors. They also about San Blas Island. They're well known for their needlework called molars. The women all wear these um, reverse of applique, five or six layers of cloth, each cut, folded back and with hand stitching like you have never seen before to make patterns.
patterns, and their traditional patterns really were beautiful. And they were looking everywhere for new ideas. So they were getting magazines from the yachts and and getting new ideas on Christmas things and making bells and their patterns and all kinds of things. Most people use them for cushion covers, which is what we did. We had some friends come out to the San Andreas Island and joined us for the trip round to Panama. And the original plan was for them to join us going through Panama. But unfortunately, it didn't quite work out because the authorities were not terribly good at keeping time and getting things right. And they got a few facts wrong and we refused to go and all sorts of things like that. Mm. So you were slowly winding your way westward, inching closer and closer towards the Panama Canal. From San Blas, we took our friends and we went into different uh, bays all the way down round the coast of Panama to get to the canal. And we went into Francis Drake's place at Portobello, which was really quite interesting because it was all fortified and apparently somewhere outside they wrecked a coffin was uh, dropped in the water, the boat capsized or something, and it was dropped in the water. So somewhere underneath the the water or outside the uh, Portobello um, uh, harbour, there might be uh, a coffin with Sir Francis Drake in it. You're now poised to travel through the Panama Canal and into a totally different world of the Pacific Islands. What preparations did you make? We had to wait to do all sorts of office business before we could actually get through, but we did a really six months provision there stock up on wines and things like that, anything that you wanted to. And with a lot of um, interesting help from some Australians who uh, pointed out that uh, they knew of a meat place where you could get your uh, meat um, cryvacked, frozen, and the meat producers would do this for you and you could just come and collect the whole block of what you'd ordered and go straight back to the boat and put it in your freezer. Well, we only still only had a fridge, but we did have a very large evaporator in the fridge, which would keep things frozen a little longer. And we managed to have fresh meat and fresh produce all the way through to the next lot of islands, which is quite a long, long way. Why did you do such a big stock up in Panama? If you're lucky, you'll do Galapagos in eight days, and then you've still got a whole month or more to make it to the first of the French islands. And at no time do you know what kind of shops you're going to find and what kind of produce. So you are stocking up where you know you can get it. Okay, so that that means your, your boat was full of provisions when you left? Yes, hanging baskets everywhere. Was there room to move on the boat? Of course. (laughs) Yeah, they were hung from the ceiling so that you weren't bothered. And even if you were six foot, I don't think you had to stand underneath a basket that was hanging. You hang the provisions from baskets from the ceiling? Nets. We had nets for veggies and fruit. And the rest of it, we would find room for them in lockers. And we had plenty of those. So we had lockers to take any of the tinned or packeted uh, things that we needed for making bread and rice and pasta and things like that. And pizza. And pizza. (laughs) (laughs) Pizza King. (laughs) The canal is around 50 miles or 80 kilometres long. But it's not as simple as just sailing your way through. No. There are three ways of doing it. You can go with three yachts all rafted together. So the outside yachts do the line handling, but the middle yacht takes charge of the engine. Uh, Then there's another way to do it. You can go attached to a tug and the tug is attached to the side of the uh, walls. And the other way 
is to go independently right in the centre and do the whole lot. And we opted for three uh, locks. We did three boats uh, rafted together, a French boat on our left and a Canadian boat on our right. They both angled their rudders in towards us and then just used the engine to push us when we needed to be pushed. What was ahead of us was a great big flat-bottomed, with an ocean-going tug pushed into a working platform. That was a really big thing. And what you had to look out for at the end of it was if the tug suddenly took off, you'd get a heck of a lot of weight back on you and the, with the boat. We had to separate ourselves pretty quickly, but um, that was okay. The next set of locks, we went alongside a tug, and that was quite good. That was no problem at all. They did all the line handling on the wall, and they just made sure that our lines were free when they wanted to take off. So we were fine there. And the next one, we were just two boats together in the middle. So that was the last one. So it's quite quite a lot. The sides of the canal, very, very high. And there are four big centre chambers where the water comes gushing in really fast so that they fill up the canal as quickly as possible and then you can get off into the next level. And, and the other way is, of course, they suck it down very, very fast. But you have to throw these ropes right over to the wall so the men can put them on the various bollards you, alongside. You throw a lightweight one first. You throw one with a monkey's fist, a monkey's on, fist on it. It's like right. a fancy knot. And it land they're quite good they practice on a target <laughs> with the uh dock master's face in the middle <laughs> and uh they, they get pretty good at it they throw this rope to you which is a, a thin rope you tie the thick rope on it and they pull it back and uh put you around a cleat and a big bollard a big bollard mm-hmm. it sounds quite dramatic it is it, it is, is. Yeah. it's quite daunting and you have to have a pilot on board every single boat or ship has to have a pilot on board so that uh, they do all the decision making he wanted uh, he encouraged us to go through in one go because the option is to stop in the middle the big lake in the middle yes, yes. Uh, but he wants to go right through in one go and he said can you do seven knots and he said well have a good day yeah <laughs> we've just got a nice I shiny think, bottom i think he was on a promise <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So this is a big moment, isn't right. it? You've moved through to the other side. We're on the other side and we've spent our time getting to know people in the locality. And when we went to the little island of Jaboga, we met up with an American guy who had a big motorboat and he had lost his anchor and he wanted to find a diver. And when we were sitting chatting to a friend of his, and we happened to say that is there any good diving around here? We were coerced into doing something. His mooring had dragged, and when we did locate the mooring block, it was a huge electrical amateur, you know, the winding piece of the middle of a huge electric motor. <laughs> but not a very good mooring block. We helped him anyway. We, we freed his anchor. For that, he gave us free choice of his charts, That's take charts true. of the Pacific, which were... Were they helpful? Yes, very. And now it's the start of part two of this journey, headed off to the Pacific Islands. We picked up our two friends who were going to come to the French islands with us. We went, left and went to Galapagos, which was magic, one of the highlights of our whole trip. On the next and final instalment of Pam and Lynn, we meet up with them as they take in the delights of the Galapagos Islands and discover how different sailing around the Pacific is. And don't forget you can find Pam and Len's personal photographs from their journey 
on the Yachting Yarns Facebook page. I'm Linda Woods. We'll see you next time for more Yachting Yarns. Sailing to